Onaso. So we'll return to Asanga's text on the practice of mindfulness of breathing. We're now definitely into Vipassana territory, having looked at the aggregates very closely one by one, with that basis, that shamatha basis in mindfulness of breathing, and then kind of making these forays or these expeditions out into the close examination of the five skandhas. But for, for our purposes here in this eight-week retreat, what I would suggest is that if you had already all, for example, already achieved shamatha, then I would say, okay, your shamatha is now in total support of vipassana, full speed ahead, vipassana. You know, that's what we're really here for, vipassana. And what's the point of vipassana? Now that with your achievement of shamatha, you've really subdued, you've made, go- made dormant your five obscurations, your mind is really working well, now come in and you know, finish the job with vipassana to really cut these mental afflictions at their root. And with that union of shamatha vipassana, you're extremely well equipped to do that. But I'm going to make a wild guess that you haven't achieved shamatha just yet, in which case uh, I think it's still worthwhile. I, I speak, with the whole tradi- speak for the whole tradition here, Theravada, Zen, Tibetan, none of them are so rigid that they say, no, I won't teach you anything more advanced until you've absolutely finished this one. It's too narrow. It's too rigid. And so while what I would suggest, though, is for the remaining four weeks, because as of today, we now have hit the midway point, uh, for the remainder of this four weeks, uh, focus primarily, like 80, 90% of your time, on the practices for which you really, you clearly are deriving benefit. And I would imagine that's probably going to be mostly jamata. If you really get benefit from the vipassana, absolutely go for it. But even if you're just really overwhelmingly focusing on the, the shamatha, maybe some of the four measurables to sweeten the soup, um, bring in the vipassana just to sow these seeds, to sow seeds of insight, because these, like the four measurables, when you return to wherever you're going, when you leave here, the four measurables are very applicable in daily life. All your social interactions and so forth, they can be very, very helpful. And likewise, the four applications of mindfulness, not with the full depth and the richness of investigating the skandhas, but in terms of the broad themes, they really can bring much more discernment, wisdom, intelligence, clarity to your engagement with whatever's happening in your life anywhere. So in short, for the time being, the four immeasurables and the, the four applications of mindfulness are kind of in service of shamatha. I do feel shamatha, together with the four measurables, will be the practices that bring about the greatest shift for which you'll derive the most clear benefit from your meditation. Okay? So that said, now let's go right back to the text as we go deeper into Vipassana territory. So we've covered the first one, thorough training by way of counting. So that was flat-out shamatha, of course. And then we had thorough training by way of the aggregates. So already looked at that. And now we go deeper into Vipassana with the third, and that is thorough training by engaging with dependent origination. So now we go into really the heart core, heart core of the Buddha's teachings, and also the realization that he himself gained, a direct experiential realization, on the third watch of the night. That is, when he's coming to the end of his night of enlightenment, that which was the final breakthrough to full awakening was his investigation of of dependent origination. So this is really central to his own experience and to the core of Buddha Dharma in all schools. There isn't, just, isn't any school that doesn't care about dependent origination. If there is, then they've, just, they've lost the scent. They're no longer connected to the Buddha Dharma. So back to Asanga. When one sees and thoroughly, thoroughly understands 
the mere aggregates, mere compositional factors, and mere phenomena, so mere, ph mere phenomena at large, then one engages with, with the dependent origination of composites. So once again, this is a short sentence, but really loaded. When speaking of the mere aggregates, this term mir, tsam in Tibetan, the mere aggregates, what is he getting at here? It's something really clear, transparent, not complicated. And that is having refined your mindfulness, your attention, by way of shamatha, then like that Hubble telescope beyond all the distortions of the atmosphere, when then you bring that clarity and that stability to the close examination of the skanda of form, of feelings, recognition, compositional factors, and consciousness, then you are, and then bring in that clarity, that inquiry of vipassana, then you see them for what they are. And when he says mirror, he's saying, just like the Buddha to Bahia, you're seeing mental events as mental events, sounds as sounds. Here you're seeing each of the aggregates as they are nakedly, without the superimposition and the fusion of the delusional projections of permanence, of these things being inherently pleasurable by nature, and of course, I and mine. You're seeing them empty of I and mine. You're seeing them simply as phenomena. That's why he says mere phenomena. Empty of I and mine. Empty of all the stuff that we conceptually project upon them and see, just see them nakedly. So this is the issue of mere. You're simply seeing them as natural phenomena arising in dependence upon prior causes and conditions, but devoid of the delusional projections that we superimpose upon our own aggregates, the compositional factors in particular, then looking especially within the, the factors, the processes of the mind, and then phenomena at large. So with that basis, now seen clearly, without fusing your projections with what is being presented, then one engages with dependent origination of composites. So again, for those of you, and I think especially those from Germany, where you have such a you know, wonderful center there for studying Buddhism well, a lot of you have a good solid basis in theory in Buddhist philosophy and psychology, then you'll see how beautifully this dovetails, or how do you say, coincides, or can be integrated with Satrantika view. The Satrantika view, right? Because the Satrantika view is saying that which is real is that which immediately presents itself to your senses. Boom, there it is. Whereas all the delusional stuff is conceptually imputed, and that's static, it, it's not real, it exists, but it's not real. So, once again, the, the marriage of the Satrantika philosophical view with the practice of Vipassana in this context is really, I think, quite extraordinary. I'm surprised that it hasn't really been taught before. It's, I'm, I'm not making up anything here, right? I mean, all the components are there. So why in all the training, when, as soon as they're studying Satrantika, why don't they say, hey, this is not just a head trip or to get good at debating. This is to purify your mind. But you won't do that just by thinking a lot about Satrantika. You need to practice, bring some experience to it. But let your experience be well-informed, enriched with the depth, the sophistication, the subtlety of Buddhist view. And here's just a perfect marriage, satantika with basic vipassana, three marks of existence and so forth. But now we move on to dependent origination of composites. What are composites? They're the real phenomena, according to satantika. These are exactly those phenomena that arise in dependence upon causes and conditions. Now, there's, the phrasing here is always so precise. I do find in Buddhism, just generally speaking, words are used very carefully. And so when saying that phenomena arise independence upon causing conditions, what this doesn't mean is that they are predetermined by. Whatever the past was, now the future is locked in. Why? Because of causality. It's not predetermination. The Buddha is very explicit about that. 
So do things arise randomly? No. For no cause at all? No. Are they then therefore determined by whatever the whole matrix of causes and conditions were? No. So it's something in between. Arising independence upon the past, but not determined by the past. And not happening for no reason at all. So once again, one engages with dependent origination, the dependent origination of composites, those phenomena that arise independence upon causes and cooperative conditions. And how does one engage with them? One seeks and inquires as to the basis and the cooperative conditions for the inhalation and exhalation. So you, you start with a microcosm, what you're attending to, your basis in shamatha, and say, okay, here's a natural event, here's a natural process taking place. It's called breathing. So now how do we understand breathing within a causal nexus? What are the primary causes, the contributing circumstances giving rise to it? One considers that the in and out breaths depend upon and are conditioned by the body and by the mind. Good start. Moreover, by what are the body and mind conditioned? So now we start going deeper. We start tracing this back exactly in terms of links of dependent origination. By what are the body and mind conditioned? One realizes, now bear in mind, if, just imagine if you've actually achieved shamatha. This means you just have, just like having a very obedient dog, a, do a dog, and you go, and the dog comes running. You say, hello, substrate consciousness. And, yes. <laughs> you know, there it is. I mean, there's your current that links lifetime to lifetime to lifetime. That's the base that, that is the carrier one way or another, at least conventionally speaking. It is the carrier for imprints, for memories, for all of these pratitas abhumata from lifetime to lifetime. So you have immediate access to that. It's not an object of belief. Again, it's like Lama Zuppa answering when he was asked, do you need to believe in reincarnation to achieve enlightenment? And he said, no. You need to know it. Yeah. It's not, you, don't get to, you don't get to enlightenment simply by believing all the right things. And believing too much could actually shut down inquiry. Oh, I already know the right answer. I memorized it. Great. Well, in this case, let's all be Zen practitioners because I think there's a book out there that tells all the answers to all the koans. We'll memorize those and we'll be Zen masters. No problem. Okay. So, but, but the answer is interesting. By what are the body and mind conditioned, one realizes that the cooperative condition for the body and mind is the life faculty. The life faculty. Well, as far as I can tell, the life faculty is really nothing other than that continuum, that subtle continuum of, of consciousness and prana. That's the life faculty. It's independence upon the life faculty that your coarse mind emerges, independence upon that, that there's actually a living organism. It's not enough just to bring together chemicals to have a living conscious organism, this, the, the sperm and the egg. That's enough to have a biological organism, but to have this being a living organism that is conscious, there has to be that continuum. Okay, now, this is a hypothesis, but that certainly is the Buddhist hypothesis. So this life, this life faculty, in Tibetan, Soki Wombo. And then by what is, what, but by what? Oh, let's see, whoop. Sorry, 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 whoops. What is the cooperative condition for the life faculty? one realizes that the cooperative condition for the life faculty is previous compositional factors. So independence upon what is this continuum, this continuum of subtle consciousness and energy 
And dependence upon what is that being propelled through from one lifetime to the next, to the next, to the next? The samskara, the compositional factors, sankara in Pali. These are all those imprints, all those imprints that are stored upon it. The imprints propelled it as it, so to speak, carries the imprints. What is the cooperative condition for the previous composites? Whoops, excuse me, that's compositional factors, not composites. What is the cooperative condition for the previous compositional factors? So independence upon what do they arise? One realizes, now think about, for those of you who have studied the 12 links of dependent origination, one realizes that ignorance is the cooperative condition for previous compositional factors. So just think, think about the first three. It's first of all ignorance, avidya, and then it's compositional factors, the samskara, and then it's consciousness, right? This consciousness. And then we have name and form, and then the rest flows on. So we're really seeking, we're, it's, like, it's like that person, what was his name? Drona, Drona in Sanskrit, who saw the footprints of the Buddha, extraordinary footprints, and like a hunter, he tracked him, he was so intrigued, and he tracked the, the, he tracked the Buddha to, to find him, because he wanted to, who, who, left, who left those footprints? Pretty, you know, if you have 32 major and 80 minor marks, you leave some pretty unusual footprints. And so he tracked him, and then he saw him, and then that gave rise to a very interesting short conversation. Uh, and the, the culmination was, it, when he asked, are you a man? And the Buddha said, no, I'm not a man. Who are you? He said, I'm awake. Remember? It's a nice story. That's just the punchline at the end. But the point here is that in a way, metaphorically speaking, as Drona was following in the footsteps to trace him and then beheld him directly, as we seek through our Vipassana practice to vent to explore these links of dependent origination, we're exactly following in the spiritual footprints of the Buddha. We're seeking to replicate his realization, his insight, which would then replicate the kind of liberation and awakening that he experienced. So we're trackers, so to speak. So thus, due to the cooperative condition of ignorance, there are previous compositional factors, which, so now we go forward, ignorance giving rise to pre, uh, previous um, compositional factors, which conditions the life faculty, which conditions the body, the body and consciousness, and the body and mind condition the in and out breath. So now we've taken it forward. Now, due to the cessation, so now there's forward, there's how samsara plays itself out. But now if we tra track this right back to its origin, ignorance, the not knowing, the unknowing of the nature of reality, back to ignorance. Where is it? Now due to the cessation of ignorance, which can only come, that can only come in one way, not by obedience, not by faith, not by compassion, only one way to remedy ignorance. Only one way to remedy avidya with vidya. Vidya. With knowledge, with knowing, with wisdom. So due to the cessation of ignorance, compositional factors cease because the cooperative condition is no longer there. Therefore, they, they, they can't get launched. Due to the cessation of compositional factors, the life faculty ceases. Due to the cessation of the life faculty, the body and mind cease. Due to the cessation of the body and mind, inhalation and exhalation cease. Thus, one engages with dependent origination. Okay? Now, this is from the Shravakayana perspective, where it really is looking at the total termination of, of your whole continuum 
that is conditioned by karma and klesha. Right? So an arhat, a person who has achieved arhatship, let's say in this lifetime, his mind is completely pure of mental afflictions. They, there's nothing you can do to him or her to arouse mental afflictions. They're gone. But nevertheless, that body and that mind of the arhat are still there. They're still being perpetuated by prior karma. So the arhat in that, life, in that last lifetime is still subject, even though pure, completely pure, is still subject to karma from previous lifetimes. Okay? Like Bahia, who with one paragraph achieved arhatship, and then within a week he was dead because he got gored by a cow. Well, there was a karmic connection with a cow. Or, or a really striking example, and I've mentioned it before, in Sanskrit, Magalayana, or Mughalanaputta. Incredible paranormal abilities. I mean, among all the disciples of the Buddha, the foremost in that. And yet, he died by getting mugged, beaten to death. I mean, just think what he could have done with his paranormal abilities. He could have turned them into mush. He could have done anything he wanted to. But no, he couldn't. Because he saw, when they kept on coming back for him, he, did, he would just disappear. He said, oh, give me a break. And he'd just disappear, evaporate his body. They would leave, he'd, he'd re-manifest. And then he saw, okay, why are they being so persistent? What's behind this? Is this something I can escape from? Maybe I can teach him Dharma, something. And then he looked back with his existential perception. And he said, ah, I see. There's some karma here. This is the last little bit of karma I have to experience before I'm totally free. And so he just waited for them. Like just some ordinary person waited for these assassins to come. They came, they beat him to death, and that was the end of his life. That's how he died. Right? But then with that, according to Shravakayana, with that, then that whole continuum of his individual consciousness arising independence upon causes and conditions, conditioned by karma, by klesha, that is totally terminated. And he'll never have a body like that again because he'll never have a continuum. That is, he'll never have the life, the life faculty and so forth and so on. It's terminated. Right? So there on the hangs the tail. Does anything linger over or not? And that'll be a discussion for another time. So thus one engages with dependent origination. One who dwells repeatedly on that, in other words, fathoms it. It's not just a catechism. Can you give the right answers? Have you actually fathomed this by way of your own experience? One who dwells repeatedly on that is said to be thoroughly trained in dependent origination. This is called thorough training by engaging with dependent origination. So there it is. Hardcore, heavy-duty, central of Vipassana. But still, you can see, still in touch with the breath. So it's still using the mindfulness of breathing as your vehicle, but now plunging full head over heels into Vipassana. Okay? Let's read a little bit more. And so now we carry on. The fourth training is thorough training by engaging with reality. Well, the term is satya, reality. And he's referring specifically to four realities, which are called Four Noble Truths. Uh, scholars have been looking at this translation, which has been around for, I think, more than 100 years. And I think there's a growing consensus that truth really isn't the right word. It's not the good translation. Because the term satya can be translated as truth, but also as reality. But a statement is true. A statement is true, right? But these are not statements. This is not a truth about a statement. This is a reality. And so it really isn't a good translation. I still use it just because so everybody does. But if you'd like to know the actual meaning, it's the four realities, four adhyas. Adhyas are the noble part. For people who have gained direct realization of nirvana, what rises up to meet them as being the most salient features of reality as a whole? 
that most profoundly catches their attention, that, that requires our attention. The reality of suffering, which they see all the way through, the reality of the source of suffering, which they completely fathom, the reality of the cessation, which they know directly, and then the reality of the path to that cessation, ethics, samadhi, and wisdom. For the adhyas, these are the most important realities or aspects of reality in the whole of the universe. And they are real for them. Therefore, they're called the four realities, four adhyas. So four noble truths, a bit vague, but there it is. So here's thorough training by, by engaging with the four realities for aryas. And the text reads, One who is thoroughly trained thus in dependent origination realizes that compositional factors, being dependently related events, are impermanent. Since they are impermanent, they occur upon, upon not having occurred previously. In other words, they freshly occur. And upon occurring, they disappear. So he's talking about their momentary nature. Moreover, those phenomena that occur upon not, upon not having occurred previously and having occurred disappear are subject to aging, birth, aging, sickness, and death. He's referring, of course, to sentient beings. So now we're getting pretty personal here because these are the four noble truths pertaining to sentient beings. So those phenomena that are subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death are unsatisfying. Why? Because they're conditioned by karma and klesha. Not because birth is intrinsically, or aging is intrinsically. Not true. But insofar as they're conditioned by karma and klesha, they're unsatisfying. They are not wellsprings of genuine happiness. Those phenomena that are unsatisfying are identityless, devoid of I and mine, not independent, and without an owner. It was a rich statement. Thus, by means of impermanent, unsatisfying, empty, and identityless properties, one engages with the reality of suffering. So there's the first noble truth. Such a person thinks everything that is suffering illness, and a boil resulting from compositional factors. This is, again, again, the propulsiveness of karma. Everything that is suffering, illness, and a boil resulting from compositional factors is conditioned by craving. So now, once again, we're getting to the root of it. We're moving on to the second noble truth. Moreover, the, er the eradication of all craving which produces suffering is tranquil and excellent, and that I know. He's moved on to the third noble truth. If one dwells repeatedly thus, if one dwells thus repeatedly, there will be a complete eradication of craving. So one ponders in that way. Thus one engages with the reality of the source, the reality of, of cessation, and the reality of the path. When one dwells on that repeatedly, one comprehends the four realities for aryas. That is called the practice of engaging with reality. So, pretty, I think it's pretty deep. And that's the Four Noble Truths in a very encapsulated form. Okay? So what's coming up is quite detailed. We're not going to cover it now. Our time is pretty much finished. But it's the, thir it's the, fi the fifth and final of these thorough trainings. And this is thorough training by way of 16 aspects. And this goes right back to the Buddha's discourse, his primary discourse in Pali. It's called the Anapanasati Sutta. 
the discourse on mindfulness in and out breathing. Um, I've not seen this in Sanskrit or Tibetan. I imagine it must be there because he's referring exactly to it. It may be buried in the Vinaya Pitika, I just don't know. It's a very short discourse. But what the Buddha does in this discourse, because I've read it from the Pali, English translation from Pali, and Buddha Gosa's commentary to it, is he takes this this core practice, mindfulness of breathing, and then he unpacks it in 16 phases. I've mentioned this before. The first four are straightforward shamatha, breathing in, out long, breathing in, breathing in, uh, in and out short, realizing the whole body of the breath, calming the composite of the body and mind. Okay, that's it, in short. The first four are all about shamatha. And the last 12 then are penetrating into vipassana practice. Um, And that's what he unpacks here, as I said, based directly on the Buddha's uh, full-scale explication of mindfulness of breathing as a a complete path, the whole whole works, to achieve shamatha and then achieve vipassana, union of shamatha and vipassana, and the culmination of the the 16th aspect or phase, you're an arhat. So that's where we're going here. We're more than halfway through the text, and I need to polish this next section. I haven't finished all of it yet, so a good time to pause. So now as we return to the meditation, obviously if we don't have direct realization of this, what do you say, this life faculty, or the substrate consciousness, then it's more a matter of an intellect. But let's venture into it and just Again, having, have your, having your home, your resting place, a place where you can really get some traction, feel that you can really engage with the practice, let that be in your shamatha. Just coming there, going deeper, deeper, just making, making your incremental progress towards settling your mind in its natural state, realizing this life faculty, achieving shamatha. So primarily working there, but we will, just for this 24-minute session, make these forays into the Vipassana aspects that he was talking about here. Okay, So please find a comfortable posture. We'll go right to it. Like slipping into a cool, clear pool of water on a hot summer day. Let your awareness slip into this field of the body right down to the ground. This non-conceptual space, non-verbal. Settle your body in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant, and your respiration in its natural rhythm. 
and settle your mind for the quality of ease, of stillness and clarity. As you attend to the sensations of the breath, the in-breath, the out-breath flowing through the body, and perhaps focus especially on the terminus, the end point, as these vital energies flow by way of the nostrils down through the torso. The terminus is that space in the region of the navel. Why not let your awareness come to rest there? Observe the sensations of the prana coming, coming to the end of the line, filling that space. And then like smoke going up a chimney, prana is going upwards again to exit through the nostrils. To help stabilize your attention, you may find it helpful to keep it focused in one area. This is a good one. Like watching a train come into a station, turn around, and depart from the station. Observe the pranas coming to that level, that region of the navel, and then departing from whence they came.
does to remind you of a key point. As the breath flows out, don't inhibit it in any way. Release it completely. And as the breath flows in, don't help it out in any way. Don't pull it. Just let it flow in. Observe the body breathing.
Now closely turn your attention to the aggregate of form, specifically that of your own body, and observe it for what it is. permanent by nature, devoid of a self, devoid of an owner, simply perceive form as form. Direct your attention to feelings, feelings arising in the body and in the mind, and recognize this aggregate of feelings simply as feelings, impermanent by nature, devoid of a self, having no owner.
direct your attention to the aggregate of recognition as you focus your awareness on the space of the mind and the mental factors arising therein. While maintaining a basis in mindfulness of breathing, observe the process of recognition taking place with this metacognition. Observe this mental process. while grounding your mindfulness in the flow of prana and the mindfulness of breathing. Direct your attention to the space of the mind and the various compositional factors, the mental processes, the impulses, the thoughts, the activities of the mind. Observe how they rise and pass, all of them being devoid of a self and having no owner. Now still resting in the flow of mindfulness of the in and out breath. Bring your awareness right into the immediate experience of being conscious and rest in that awareness. Seeing consciousness itself rise by moment by moment, devoid of a self, devoid of an owner.
open your awareness in all directions to the realm of phenomena, the dharmadhatu, the domain of all phenomena. Observe them rise and fall, none of them being a self, and all of them lacking an owner. I think this is a realm of Vipassana that's not out of reach. Because after all, we already have these five skandhas. It's not something we'll achieve one day. And to bring, even without having achieved shamatha, to bring as clear and stable attention as we can to the, feel, to the body, we can certainly do that. And then likewise for the other aggregates. And the core reason for doing this is to unconfuse so a confused existence, for example, as a human being, would be like having a body and having, like being a cook and going into your pantry and say, oh, there's a body, and put that into your vase. Oh, there's some feelings. Rec- oh, recognition, we could use that. Oh, nice. The medley of compositional factors. Put that in. Six consciousnesses, absolutely. And this is a mixer and then put on the lid and hit high. And you get puree of you. And when you're finished, you just say, that's me. <laughs> but notice how this is really, this is actually, I think, how it works. I was just thinking, if, especially to, for a woman, if someone comes to a woman and says, oh, you have such lo-, especially women to women, and there's, no, there's nothing derogative here, but if a woman to woman, one day it happens, doesn't it? Oh, you have beautiful nails. They say that sometimes, right? 
You're beautiful. And what does the polite woman say? Thank you. <laughs> you have very pretty hands. Thank you. Got great legs. Thank you. You're very intelligent. Thank you. You have good teeth. Thank you. You have a nice car. Thank you. You have great kids. Thank you. Nice house. Thank you. Because you've just been praising me all over the place. You know? And so it's the blender. That we're just saying, this is all mine. You've praised me every single time. Even you live in a nice neighborhood. Thank you. <laughs> you know? My neighborhood, right? <laughs> I mean, it's my neighborhood because this is where I live. You know, the ripple effect goes out all the way to the end of my neighborhood, unlike the other neighborhoods. But also, the real, there's a real pointedness here. When we say, I've been really screwing up my practice. Right? Or I've done this, I've done that. And always giving all the agency. I, I, I meditated really well the last session. Or I've, I do, I, I, I. It's like there's one entity in here that's responsible for everything. And so if it's bad, then I have low self-esteem. Because I didn't do well in an exam, and this didn't work out well, and I was involved in that relationship, and I, I loused up that relationship, and, and so forth. There's just the, the buck always stops in one place. It's an Americanism. But it always points to, okay, who's in charge here? Like in a company. You don't blame the janitor. You don't blame the secretary. Say, who's in charge? Or the captain of the ship? Who's in charge? Or, you know, this happens in American politics. So, you know, the, 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 the embassy in Libya was attacked. The, the ambassador was killed together with other people. You know who's responsible? Obama. And there are actually people saying that. Obama, you're, you're in part responsible for this. After all, you're the captain of the ship. That embassy is your embassy. Don't vote for Obama. See what happens when Obama's in charge. Embassies get blown up or people get killed in embassies. So there. You know, so it's the point of sheer absurdity. Sheer absurdity on a national level, but also here, and here it really hits the road, is confusing everything, mushing it all together. Me, my mental afflictions, my, my, my virtues, my body, my fingernails my memories, my imagination, and just bl blending it, just hit high and get a puree of everything and then say, I'm the owner and operator. That's really disastrous. It's fundamentally delusional, but it's really disastrous. So if I focus on things that I've done well, you know, then it naturally gives rise to an exalted sense of self. Because who's done that as well? I have a Stanford PhD. Why don't I identify with that? Much better than a UCLA PhD. Or whatever, you know. Rubbish. Rubbish. That's a good PhD. It's, I'm, I'm happy to have that degree. I'm honored I was paid for the whole way. So thank you. Every, everybody who paid for my tuition, because I didn't pay for any of it. So <laughs> thank you all. It was a joint effort. By the way, it was paid by taxpayer money. So I had about 330 million people helping me get my PhD. And that's literally true. right? So that was a group effort, because I did not have the money to pay for that tuition. It wasn't there. And so... It can either give rise to pomposity, arrogance, and sense of superiority when we're saying, I did that, as if I, the autonomous agent, and of course, the flip side. Oh, I'm such a terrible person. 
By the way, I want you to know that each one of you, because I've listened to you now, each one of you is definitely the slowest, most backward, ungifted meditator here. <laughs> you all win F. Equally, though, you know, you're all the worst. So now you should be relieved. There's nobody beneath you. And oh, and I'm the worst meditation teacher within, you know, in a broad variety, in a whole range, you know. I'm definitely the worst one. So at least we're made for each other. <laughs> the worst meditation teacher and the worst meditators. Put her there. You know? So there we are. You see how silly it is. You know, it really is silly. So there it is. So this, this is like, so it was a beautiful ex- experiment cited by David Bohm with his implicate order. This will be very short, but it's quite beautiful. You, you put a viscous liquid with a dye into a centrifuge. And then you turn it on, and it goes, and you just get, get this gray soup. The, the, the dye merges with the, the paler liquid or viscous liquid. And so you just get kind of gray. And so that's confusion, where it's just all blended together. But then he points out, it has to be just the right viscosity. But then if you turn it around, you turn it in reverse order, you know, then actually they, they do separate again. And you can say, oh, here's the dye, and here's what was dyed. You can actually turn it in reverse. And that's what he's saying. There's an implicate order underlying that you don't see, obviously. But if you could unspin it, then you would see how there's a distillation. A distillation. That's frankly, is exactly what we're doing here. We're unconfusing. We're turning that, that puree back into what were the ingredients that got all blended together into a great big me. And then... Because this is the Buddha's brilliance, and he, t- he emphasized this probably every year of his teaching for 45 years. He was coming back to these five skandhas again and again and again and again. Why? Unpuree them. So that you're not just saying, oh, I screwed up there, and oh, I'm so beautiful, and oh, I'm intelligent, oh, I'm so ugly, and oh, I'm so stupid. I, 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 just the puree was something I feel good about and I feel bad about. Get over the puree. Distill it back into its composite and see it clearly with discerning wisdom. And you say, oh, but this is just a body. This arose in dependence upon my pa- parents' sperm and egg, and then a lot of food. <laughs> but I didn't do it. It wasn't sperm, egg, and me. Yeah, sperm, egg, and a continuum of consciousness, but that's not me either. It's just a continuum of consciousness. And so the body is just a body, and then feelings arise in dependence upon causing conditions in the body and the mind. But they're just arising, arising, and that goes for all the skandhas. So when you see each of these heaps, that's what this word skanda means, each of these bundles, each of these aggregates, there's the, there's the bundle, the, the assembly of feelings. There's the bundle of compositional factors, a lot of them, the bundle of six types of consciousness. When you see them distinctly, distinctly, without smearing them, say, oh, how interesting. Form is just form, feeling is just feeling, recognition, compositional factor, consciousness, Now it's all clear. The only thing that's not there is there's no self amongst them and there's no autonomous self outside of them. How refreshing. And that is the experience. If you're well prepared for that experience. If you're not, then you start freaking out. Thinking, I don't exist, I don't exist. Where's my rumination? And I think, therefore, I am. I think, I think a lot, therefore, I am a lot. I think, I think, I think, therefore, I am a whole lot. <laughs> you know? <laughs> then you've got to be a clone of Descartes. 
Congratulations to Samsara. You have now full membership. Oh, yeah. So here's a question. Would you please, please, would you elaborate more on the practice in between sessions if my main focus is awareness, awareness? I think I covered that one yesterday, yeah? I think so, yeah. Jolly good. So then on to a short one. To what stage of the shamatha practice is it reasonable to expect? That's a six-letter word. Look out for six-letter words. <laughs> this is a real killer, expect. The other, let's see. Eight-letter word. Expect, and there's an eight-letter word that's just a killer. It's like drinking arsenic. You ready for it? Progress. You've been here for a whole month. So what's your progress? And what can you expect in terms of progress for the next four weeks? Just give me a rope and let me hang myself. (laughs) Okay, so to what stage of the shamatha practice is it reasonable to expect to achieve while living in the modern world and being dedicated to the practice? It is a good question, of course. We're not, and again, it's always a matter of balance. We're not meditating for no reason. If you are, then, you know, find something else to do. (laughs) At the same time, if we're practicing, always hovering around, am I progressing, am I progressing, and with expectations, I should be achieving stage three within two months and 30 days, you know, whatever, then we're just, you know, it's a recipe for failure. So where's the middle way there? I say broadly speaking, but I'm going I'm to immediately adjust what I'm going to broadly say. So I'm going to say broadly speaking, there are two approaches. Let's say, let's say just for shamatha, because that was the question about shamatha. Broadly speaking, there's the psychological hy- hygiene approach. And I say that with only respect. There's nothing dismissive, derogative, nothing at all about that. Any more than I shower every day, I shave, brush my teeth. That's, psycholo- that's physiological hygiene. There's nothing rid- ridiculous about that even though I'm not getting any cleaner from day to day. My teeth are not getting cleaner. And what else do I do? Not much. I mean, that's about it. I'm certainly not getting any more handsome. That's for sure. So basically, I'm just slipping down into old age. But ne- meanwhile, you know, I'm trying to do clean with and hold on to my teeth. And that's good enough reason to shower and brush your teeth every day. Even though you're not getting better at it, it's good to have a healthy body with teeth rather than a decaying body without any teeth. Right? So there's no progress, but it's 20 minutes a day very well spent to keep your body clean and brush your teeth. Right? And we're all accustomed to that now. And on top of that, if you do whatever it may be without being an Olympic athlete, if you exercise for 20, 30 minutes a day, all the better. Whether it's yoga, whether it's jogging, whatever, then all the better. You keep the system working. Even though you're not running, learning how to run faster, you're not getting better and better and better as the decades go by uh, in yoga and so forth. But it's good, and that's hygiene. It's keeping the system in good working order. So in a similar fashion, then meditating, half an hour, tw- one gatika, two gatikas every day, shamatha, and then augment that one way or another, between sessions, on the cushion, four measurables, the best companions you can find in the world. And as you become more familiar with the four applications of mindfulness, you see how this brings greater clarity, insight, wisdom, understanding to everyday life, and that's a tremendous boom even if most of your practice is in between sessions. So with these two as kind of your support, but the four measurables being, I mean, each of these being so valuable in and of themselves, but focusing on shamatha, if you do one or two gatakas every day, 
in the midst of a very busy life, maybe tremendous demands on your time, but you still do it because it's a high priority, what can you expect? To achieve shamatha? Extremely unlikely. In that lifestyle, two sessions a day? I can't say it's impossible, but the chances are so remote that I'd be willing to bet against it. You know? And I'd probably win. Right? But, if you're only, but if you're not progressing, you're not marching along the nine stages to shamatha, then we think, well, then it's a waste of time. If I'm not progressing, why should I do it? And then think of the analogy of exercising a half hour a day. Are you getting stronger and stronger? So by the time you get to 50, you look like you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in his good days. Even Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his good days. It's not getting any better. But with a gatika or two, two preferably, to start the day, end the day, could that enhance the overall quality of your day? The way you're engaging with other people, the quality of relaxation, stillness, and clarity you bring to your work, interpersonal relationships, mundane things like driving and shopping, but also entertainment, enjoying yourself, doing so with just those qualities, greater sanity, greater mental balance. And could that be enriched? Could you mature cognitively? Could you become wiser and wiser in your desires, aspirations, yearnings? Could you be gradually more and more attentive, engaged? Could you do so with greater and greater wisdom and insight? And through all of that, as the years pass, practicing two gatikas every day, could you find, as the years go by, greater emotional maturity, balance, intelligence, resilience? The answer is yes. So I think that's a good enough reason. It just improves the whole quality of life. right? And then, of course, if you're raising children, as every parent knows if they're paying attention, what you're teaching your children primarily is who you are and not what you're saying. And so if you're embodying those qualities, embodying those qualities, mental balance, and manifesting by restraining impulses that could be harmful and being benevolent in your activities. Boy, good parent, good worker, good employee. Everybody will want you. Right? So that's enough. And that's two gatikas a day. It's not bad. And making no progress in shamatha per se. Maybe stage two. And just living at stage two. Right? Now there's another approach. And this is for a person to really have as a high priority in the midst of fully active, socially engaged way of life with lots of responsibilities and so forth, attending to that, giving under Caesar, Caesar's do, but in the midst of that, having in the back of the mind, I really would like to transform or yeah, transform from a cat to an elephant. That is, right? So in the midst of all of that, become less and less dependent upon hedonic pleasure. Still engage with the life. Be in the world. But as they say, be in the world, but not of it. Say, so go to the movies. But if the movie breaks halfway through, you recognize the movie is ha broken halfway through. I think we're finished here. <laughs> and leave the theater without thinking, crap, why did it happen to me? I paid good. Oh, oh man, what a bummer. I can't stand. I, ah, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> Give it a rest. It's just a movie. So thinking just in the back of the mind, this whole way of life, the purpose of it is not just to eat a lot of food and create a lot of stuff you know, that gets flushed down. <laughs> we can do that anyway. But the whole point here is to mature, to, to mature psychologically, spiritually, 
to lead a more and more meaningful way of life. And in the process of that, through that maturation process, more and more you're releasing attachment to this life, and more and more you're letting your mind become dharma. Right? Such that when the time is right, if it's in the back of your mind, and you see the outer constellation of your circumstances in your life, in your inner constellation, what you're bringing to life, you see a real symmetry there, a harmony, a compatibility. And you're looking out, and you see, is there any reason not to go off and achieve shamatha? No? Thank you. And you look inside. Oh, no reason here either. I'm set. I really could live without, with few desires, with contentment, with few activities and concerns, ethically, and I really have gotten the hang of releasing rumination. I think I'm set. Okay, let's bring these to get two together, and let's make short work of shamatha. Not piddle around with it for years on end. And, of course, outward is also the conducive environment. So hopefully we'll have our contemplative observatories up. So when that happens then, having lived, lived perhaps a very active way of life, but maintaining a regular meditative practice, then when the outer and the inner mandala are ready, then you go off and achieve shamatha, and once you've achieved that, then I would have to say the sky is the limit. The sky is the limit. What can't you achieve if you've achieved shamatha? To say you can't achieve sh- uh, vipassana is crazy. Of course you can. That's the whole point. But if you've really been developing the four immeasurables along the way, now why couldn't you achieve bodhicitta? Genuine, uncontrived, authentic bodhicitta? Why couldn't you? What's, what's in the way? And if you've got shamatha, you've got realization, vipassana-style realization, and you've got bodhicitta, now tell me what your limits are. And whatever you say is wrong. Wide open, state regeneration, completion, textuate tutgel. I wouldn't place any limits. So, those are the two the hygienic approach, and then when the outer and the inner mandala are ready, go for it. Then, six hours, eight hours, 10, 12, 14 hours a day, as it just gets more and more alluring, and you want to devote yourself, you just don't want to spend any time off the cushion, then you just go for it. Get into the flow and just flow right through the nine stages and achieve shamatha. So those are two large-scale avenues that have been explored for a long time. That is, for a long time, throughout whole Buddhist history, there have been very, very dedicated lay people and monks and nuns who have many responsibilities, but they're doing some meditative practice, and they really do mature very well in practice. And then we've had, for since the time of the Buddha, people who retire into the jungle, to the mountains, to the desert, full-time, contemplatives. And they often, not always, but often, they just wind up being like beacons, like lighthouses in the wilderness. Look, there's, there's one, there's one. That one achieved shamatha, that one's achieved stage regeneration, whatever. So there they are. But now, is there anything in between? Because what I've just mentioned, those are two routes that have been well-traveled. Is there anything in between? And the answer is yes. And it, it's, it's not that this is virgin territory, that is, we're the first generation to explore it, but this is that something in between would be extremely worth exploring more deeply. And that is not utter solitude, meditating 12, 14 hours a day, not just an hour or so a day while devoting 18 hours a day to activities in the world. But how about something in, be- in between? Where maybe you're meditating three, four, five hours a day, but still doing in the world what you need to do. But here's the catch, not doing anything more. And I don't mean being stingy. I mean every person who comes to you that really needs you, you give them all that they need. 
but you don't give them more. Just like with our dear friend Natu. It's wonderful that you receive what you need, but not more. It just then gets, maybe pleasant, maybe unpleasant, but it's not necessary by definition. It's not necessary. Give what's needed and then stop. Because you've given everything needed. So what, that's it, right? And so a person who is meditating four or five hours a day, living as consciously, as mindfully as possible, a really contemplative way of life, while still having some degree of social engagement, attending to this, attending to that, but just bringing the contemplative mind to everything. Could a person achieve shamatha in that way? Four or five hours of formal practice a day? Something like that. Could be six, seven, it could be three or four. But in a, in a way of life that is truly a contemplative way of life. It's just not one of total solitude. Could such a person achieve? Why not? And here's the arithmetic of it. Here's the arithmetic of it. And that is, if you know how to practice well, then when you sit on the cushion, you should incrementally, step by step, gradually be developing these qualities. Relaxation, stability, and vividness, gradually moving along the nine stages. That's what it's for. So when you're on the cushion, there you are, giving your whole concerted effort to developing along the path of shamatha. You should be moving forward. In between sessions, when you're on the phone, maybe the internet, talking to this person, going out grocery shopping, and so forth, chances are you'll probably slide back a little bit, just because you know, a lot of pulls on your attention. So there'll probably be some diffusion, some entropy, that coherence that you develop on the cushion, probably dissolving somewhat. So here's the simple arithmetic. Right? If you're spending four hours a day on the cushion, that is, whether supine or sitting, four hours a day, are you progressing more in four hours a day then you are falling back in the other 20. So if you're falling back more during the 20, so that every time you come to your next session, you're right where you were, because you just fell back all the way, then no, that means you're having a good practice and you're getting a good benefit from those four hours, but you're not progressing. So those other 20 hours may be much richer, more so than if you meditate only one hour. More mindful, more attentive, more good, 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 but not progressing, because in terms of sheer relaxation, stability, and vividness, you keep on un unraveling it, right? And that means because there's not enough mindfulness, not enough engage, too much rumination, too much scattering. So then that simply erodes or undermines that coherence, that anti-entropy, that samadhi that you're cultivating while on the cushion. But if you're so mindful, so present, so engaged, so not marching backwards by way of rumination, when you're off the cushion, if you take four steps backwards, four, four steps forward while on the cushion, and only two steps backward for the other 20 hours, and that includes, of course, sleep, if you take four steps forward and only two steps falling back, well, then do the math, as they say. You may not achieve shamatha as quickly as a person who's practicing 14 hours a day and doing almost nothing in between sessions, maybe gardening, walking, a little bit of yoga, maybe not as quick. But four steps forward and two steps back is definitely moving in the right direction. So I'd love to see that. I'd love to see that. As we have our contemplative observatories up. One, one easy one, one easy trial would be that when we have these contemplative observatories up, somebody has to maintain them. Somebody needs to do the grocery shopping. Hopefully not the yogis. right? Maybe there'll be some building maintenance. Maybe they'll have a garden. That'd be nice, a nice organic garden. 
Maybe there'll be other things, ways to you know, keep the place going. Administrative stuff, doing the accounting and so forth. Uh, answering emails about, uh, you know, do you have an opening in the center? I'd really like to come and so forth. Doing the administrative stuff. Hopefully that would not be a burnout, 12 hours a day kind of job. If it is, then we better reconsider what's going on here. But imagine a person who's making right livelihood, probably a very modest income, but is getting paid for it. This is, you know, we can't expect everything for free. Imagine a person getting a modest income, enough to get the requisites, food, shelter, clothing, medical care, maybe some Dharma education, and is working four or five hours a day to do whatever is needed. And working four or five hours a day, you're making enough to live on. That leaves you, what, 20 hours a day? Not to be like a yogi who's in full retreat, but gosh. So there's a lovely story in the Shabigad. It's a really nice story. It's uh, during the time, about 1,000 years ago, 900 years ago, I think it was the disciples of Domdomba, the great lay disciple of Atisha. And he had a number of disciples who were really dedicated yogis, those Kadampa Geshes. Everybody loves them. They did no politics. They were just pure, focused dharma. No monkey business, just straight dharma. They're just loved by everybody because they didn't make enemies. They just practiced dharma and shut up. You know? And they made no big deal about, oh, look at me, I'm a Vajrayana practitioner. They were just outwardly, it's very sweet. Outwardly, they were largely ordained. Outwardly, they would simply show that they were good monks. They would be willing to display that. Not flaunt it, but observing their behavior, they can see, oh, you're a good monk, a good nun. That's manifest. It's physical and verbal. You can see that. And they would, they would be unabashed, unreserved about showing, I'm a good monk. Like his holiness the Dalai Lama. He often says, I'm a simple Buddhist monk. He doesn't say simply practitioner. He's really a monk. He's a really good monk. And you can see that. Right? So outwardly, they would display, I'm ethical. I'm not embarrassed about that. I'm not hiding it. I'm not pompous about it, but this is what I'm displaying. I'm ethical, monastically ethical. High, raising the standard pretty high. Inwardly, Mahayana, Bodhicitta, cultivation of six perfections. Secretly, Vajrayana, that nobody even know. Only after they died and somebody's going into their cave to pick up their belongings, oh, they've got a Vajrayana bell. I guess he must have been practicing Vajrayana. But nobody even know about it. That's the old style. That's the old school. That's the old style. That's the authentic Kadampa tradition. So there was Domdumba. Had quite a number of disciples who were of that caliber, meditating away. And then there was the cook who took care of them, right? Brought them the food, cooking, and so forth. And after some time, Domdumba called them all in called in the troops to see how they're doing. You know, report, report. He's their meditation teacher. He said, report, how are you doing? Calls them in, 20, 30, who knows how many there were. And then they're speaking to their Dharma teacher. They'll be completely candid. And so he called in all the meditators. The cook was there as well. And each one reported. And Dom Dumba said, okay, I've heard all of you. Now the one who's done the best, progressed the most deeply. Congratulations, cook. You can imagine it, too. Motivation, bodhicitta. Every act, an expression of his bodhicitta. 
every act of getting, getting the food, preparing the food, cleaning up, attending to with humility. Because he's just the cook. right? With humility, attending to each of the yogis, serving them to the best of his ability with no attachment. In other words, given up all attachment to this life and his mind is totally dharma. Deepest realization. Oh, yeah. Doesn't Tibetan Buddha have great stories? I think it does. Okay, one more here. Middle explanation. A part of the mind is wandering around while another part is focused on the meditation object. Yep. It's called coarse or medium excitation, subtle excitation. Is it better to focus the attention more on the object of meditation or to wholesome multitasking? For example, focusing on awareness of awareness and at the same time with a corner of the mind noticing the flow of the breath. This is from Birgit. Very good question. And it's, yeah, it's not silly at all. <coughs> it's a matter of where we are in the practice. And that is, we've seen in, in Asanga's presentation of the Vipassana, it's clearly kind of a multitasking there. Because he's establishing that basis in the mindfulness of out, in and out flow of the breathing, that's mindfulness, and then with yilachyapa, or manasikara, attention, then you're attending to the body, to feelings and so forth. That's clearly a kind of, of multitasking, or like riding a bicycle and doing something else at the same time, maybe singing or sightseeing or taking photos, who knows what. And so there is a role for going back and forth, and in fact, as you well know, it's good to remember that the practice of shamatha up to stage eight, out of nine stages preceding shamatha, the practice of shamatha up to, but not including stage eight, entails multitasking. Again, what's multitasking? And attending to? Exactly right, yeah. I'll say it again because he doesn't have the mic, but exactly right. You're attending to the meditative object, whether that's your breathing, whether it's the space of the mind, whether it's awareness of itself, but also attending to the, the flow of mindfulness itself, the quality of attention, recognizing whether excitation and laxity have arisen. Those are two different tasks. They're two different job descriptions. One's looking this way, and another one's looking this way. Which means that when introspection intercedes, interferes, it does break the flow of mindfulness because we have only one mind. And in Buddhist psychology, in one single moment, you can't attend to two t entirely different fields or domains of experience. In one single moment, in one cluster, like a 30, 30 millisecond, 50 millisecond, one cluster, you can't pick up. You can't attend to, direct your attention to visual and to the mental. You can't attend to the breath and be attending to the flow of mindfulness. Okay. Now, there are many, many clusters per second, so they get blurred together like an, an emotion picture, and you feel like, oh, no, I'm, multi I'm doing these all simultaneously. Right? And over the course of a second, are you doing multiple tasks? Definitely, yes. Over the course of a quarter of a second, you're doing multiple tasks. But when you, get when you cut it finer and finer, you say, oh, at this level, you're jumping back and forth. You're jumping tracks and doing this and that, and that is multitasking. And that's what everybody does when they multitask. They're on the phone and they're looking at the children, at their, at their child, and they're watching this, watching the, the stove on the, you know, the, the pot on the stove. And so, what are they doing? They're not doing all of that in one time, in one moment. They're going, 
And so, for this practice, it's a given. It's not, it's not optional. It's a given that we will be multitasking. Then the question is only how much. And then as you progress along those nine stages, of course, slowly, slowly, you can decrease the frequency of the intervention by introspection until when you achieve eight, stage eight, since even subtle laxity and excitation are no longer arising, then you don't break the flow of mindfulness at all. So now you're, you're unitasking, unitasking or monotasking, unitasking probably better. And so, but for the, for the array that we have here, When you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, I would suggest that you do just the multitasking of attending to the sensations of the breath and break that flow with introspection. That's multitasking. So it's simple, simply that. If you're practicing settling the mind in its natural state and you, you are still prone to getting a bit disoriented, a bit kind of spaced out or drawn away, just sucked away, sucked away, and feeling, oh, I'm not quite sure I'm up to this, then feel free to have a bit of multitasking, something a bit more comfortable, rhythmic, predictable. Because when you're attending to the space of the mind, you don't know what's coming up next. You never do, unless you did it, in which case then you're not settling the mind in its natural state. It was deliberate. It's coming up stochastically, right, by its own accord, which means you don't know what. In one second, what's the next thing to come up? You don't know. So if you still find that quite challenging, then I would, I would suggest is, as in this Vipassana practice, ground yourself in the flow of mindfulness, and then from that nice undulating flow, direct more and more of your attention to the space of the mind until you get into a flow there. It's not undulating, but you feel, ah, I really am holding my own ground in a flow of still awareness, watching the comings and goings of the mind, and I am maintaining continuity. Good. Now I can release that peripheral awareness of the breath and just do this single-pointedly, and now I'm just multitasking mindfulness and introspection. And likewise, for awareness of awareness, I've introduced a contaminant into that practice. While Padmasambhava suggests this oscillating, releasing out into space, withdrawing into awareness, that's his teaching, which is not multitasking, it's just an ongoing flow of somewhat different tasks. Uh, I have suggested that if you're new to the practice, don't really have the hang of it yet, then you might conjoin that rhythm of the release and the retraction with the breath, so as you breathe out, releasing awareness into space as, you, as the breath flows in, withdrawing awareness into itself. I've messed with Padmasambhava's teachings um, just to provide people with some entry if that's just too subtle, and they can't do it. That's why I've, I've messed with his. But I always say it's like the Wallace footstool to get into the Padmasambhava carriage. Okay? So you just use it to get into the carriage. Once you're in the carriage, don't mess with the footstool any longer. So once you feel you really can do that oscillation and you set your own rhythm, the, the, the duration of how long do you go, how long do you release, how long do you retrieve your awareness, then you set your own pace and at that point kick away the Wallace footstool and say, I don't need that anymore. And then just do the practice single-pointed. Okay? Good. One can see this also with Donglen. That Donglen is really all about the cultivation of compassion and loving-kindness. As a prelude to the bodhicitta. At the same time, as you well know from Atisha, it's conjoined with mindfulness of breathing. The breathing out, the breathing in. So a bit of multitasking there. But it keeps you engaged, keeps you with a nice rhythm. And rhythm's good. Rhythm's good. Okay. Enjoy your evening.